Good evening. I guess I'll point myself in this direction tonight. Let's have our Bibles ready in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. That's the location of our study tonight. I want to begin with a couple of reminders for us about this Old Testament book. I think these reminders will do us good as we continue our study. Ecclesiastes was written similar to the format of a journal where you record your thoughts in some progression, perhaps day by day, periodically writing down your current thinking about your life and life in general, and then you revise and you work your way toward a conclusion. You think through hard-hitting, perplexing problems and enigmas about life on earth, and this thought process occurs over time, and you record your thoughts and express your emotions and struggles, but in the end, the hope is that you'll have a highly valuable practical conclusion. Well, that's what Solomon was doing, and God was in the details of what Solomon recorded to give us this instruction. And his conclusion comes at the end of his journal, at the end of Ecclesiastes. Life here under the sun finds its highest expression when we fear God and keep his commandments. The second observation I wanted to remind us about as we continue in chapter 6, is that expression under the sun. Contextually, that expression under the sun is really just about life here on earth. And that expression under the sun expresses the limitation of life here on earth. And I've said many times in the course of these studies that if your life perspective and purpose is limited to this life under the sun, without God, the maker of the sun, Solomon says, that is vanity and a chasing after wind. The point becomes, life here on earth with God left out is vanity and a grievous evil. And I've expressed it this way as we have been going through Solomon's journal, if a person has everything but not God, he really has nothing of lasting value and death brings an end to all of that. And then of course the New Testament speaks of what comes after death for those who have ignored God. So these are things to keep in mind as we continue our journey in Ecclesiastes. We'll read chapter 6 in just a moment after prayer. Heavenly Father, we express to Thee our praise, our adoration and love, and at this time our desire for Thy help as we approach Thy Word for good discipline as applied in our thinking and our living day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We have 12 verses we're going to navigate. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. 
If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes that the wandering of the appetite than, I'm sorry, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after when. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? When Solomon says here in verse 1 of chapter 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun that lies heavy on mankind. Let's resist the temptation to stop there and speculate. Very often in Bible reading and Bible study, we are tempted to come to a word or a phrase and just stop there and try to figure that out. What we need to do is just keep reading and many times immediately after a difficult word or phrase there will be an explanation and that's the case here. Let's let Solomon tell us what this evil is that he talks about in chapter 6. Let's let him tell us in his own words. He tells us what this evil is in verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. So, the grievous evil under the sun that Solomon refers to in verse 2, in this passage, is having everything but not being able to enjoy what you have the way you had imagined or the way you had desired. Let me highlight that. The grievous evil under the sun in this passage is having everything, but not being able to enjoy what you have the way you had imagined or desired. And again, we see that when God is left out of our plans, 
and our priorities here on earth under the sun, we are ultimately not really going to be satisfied. You may acquire many things and have many successes and many pleasures and many honors and find some temporary satisfaction in all that acquisition under the sun, but the excitement that you had when you first started this life of fame and fortune under the sun turns out to be a grievous evil if God is not in your life. What we're doing is taking chapter 6 and factoring in the overall theme of the book and of course we already know from our vantage point what the conclusion is. Now here's what I want to do to stress what we're looking at here. I want to start back in 518 and read down through 6 verse 7 and see how that unit all comes together. Behold, this is 518, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. I think that's an, a unit there from 5.18 down to 6 verse 7, and it leads to this very simple thought. Not satisfied. Not satisfied. You can acquire more than your neighbor. You can be honored above your peers. You may have many children and live to a good old age, yet be unsatisfied when you look back because God was left out. Or he was kept at such a distance that you were not responsive to him. God has given us things to enjoy here under the sun, but we need him to have long-term fulfillment, long-term soul fulfillment under the sun, even if you have everything, is not possible without God. And that continues to be the thematic emphasis of the text. 
out of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Let me put it this way. Fame and fortune never comes to a person with a label that says satisfaction guaranteed. Fame and fortune never comes to a person with a label that says satisfaction guaranteed. It may make you happy for a while, but it's a shallow happiness. You may lose it all at any time. You may have a big family live to a good old age, but none of that comes with a guarantee that you'll keep it all or that it will satisfy the needs of your soul. Solomon says, it is a grievous evil, vanity, chasing after wind. Do you see that? Life here under the sun, even if you have everything that you ever desired when you started early in your life, it's not ultimately satisfying if God has been left out. Verses 3 and 4. If a man fathers a hundred children, I just find that phrase exhausting. If a man fathers a hundred, think about the grandchildren coming over to. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. In Hebrew culture, the larger the family, the better. All through the Old Testament you observe this. Women wanted to bear children. Men wanted large families to transmit promises and legacies and further the family name. It had far more meaning to the Hebrews than is ordinary in our culture. So there was striving for wealth and possessions and honor and along with that many children and grandchildren and a good burial at the end of a long life. Solomon doesn't say that all of that is wrong in and of itself. Solomon is putting acquisition in wise perspective. He's putting acquisition in wise perspective. And to do that in the style of Hebrew poetry, Solomon sometimes rattles us with statements like this. All of this may happen, yet a stillborn child is better off than this man who had all these kids, had a legacy to leave, had all this fortune and fame, but if his life is limited to what's under the sun, a stillborn child is better off than he. I'm not willing to regard that as an exaggeration. I believe we know the destiny of a stillborn child, right? In fact, is it not reflected in the text? Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. 
So we, we know that the stillborn child goes to be with the Lord. That's far better than the man who spends his life trying to be satisfied with what he acquires. Acquisition doesn't meet the needs of the soul. Only an active relationship with God meets the needs of the soul. So picture a man who can never rest. He works so hard his health is poor. He has little time to cultivate real relationships. And he expects his acquisitions to make him happy. Solomon comes along and says... The stillborn child is better. Verse 5, the stillborn child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. So I'm going to plug in now a main point of all this out of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. And that point is that acquisition may reward us with some temporary pleasure, but without God, it's always going to leave you empty. Acquisition may reward us with some temporary pleasure under the sun, but without God, it leaves us empty. Questions or comments? Uh, references made to that in one of the parables of Jesus in uh, Luke. Yeah, Luke 12. That's a good connection with what we're looking at here. And what I do in Ecclesiastes that helps me a lot is to look for key phrases that identify the theme of a section. And here's what I see here in verse 3. His soul is not satisfied. His soul is not satisfied. The child who dies in birth is better off than the rich man who tries to satisfy his soul with acquisition. So one way to consider this is, here's another reality check signed by Solomon. Solomon is teaching us to depend on God and see everything that we have as a gift from God rather than depending on his gifts but ignoring the giver. You with me there? Depending on what God enables us to have, but ignoring the giver. Solomon says that's chasing after wind. In fact, every truth that emerges in Ecclesiastes is going to connect with something Jesus said and something the apostles said in the New Testament because it is as real today as it was then. 7 through 9, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after when. We are all familiar with what might be called an obsessive, overwork, high-stress-oriented lifestyle. 
that can be fatal physically and spiritually. You get up early and you work late, you're driven by acquisition. Not much attention to taking care of your body or your family. Teamwork in your family is largely missing. The church gets almost none of your time. But at times it occurs to you that you don't seem to be getting anywhere. In terms of your own well-being and satisfaction seems to elude you. If you do get somewhere, you may have such dreadful losses that you don't enjoy what you earn. Or every day you get up and worry about possible losses. If you push God aside, put work first above your wife and children and kingdom work, you may achieve a measure of worldly success and have an impressive portfolio but you come to a place where you face the hard truth that you're not really satisfied inside. The advantages and dreams that you had in your youth could turn out to be disappointments in your old age. Here's what happens. You see attractive things and you think that they will satisfy the empty place inside you. And so you go after those things with all of your energy and that empty place inside of you just gets emptier. Solomon says, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Out of these verses, there is this reality that sometimes the poor man is actually happier and fulfilled compared to the wealthy who are driven only by what is available under the sun. If God is in your heart, it doesn't matter as much how little you have in your pocket. If God is in your heart, it doesn't matter how much you have. Solomon says, if your life is limited to what's under the sun, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So here's another key statement in verse 7. Toil... Yet his appetite is not satisfied. So you have toil without real satisfaction because God isn't there. And Solomon says that's vanity. So we have one main idea here about acquisition. Acquisition may reward us with some temporary pleasure under the sun while we're here. But without God, it leaves us empty. And as we go along without God, that empty place, um, as I expressed it a moment ago, seems to become emptier. Verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For he knows, I'm sorry, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Have you ever observed this? A young man comes on the scene 
and his mind is filled with dreams and revolution and new knowledge and better answers. And it's like he's saying, now that I'm here, everything will be different. Psychologists actually have a name for this. They used to call it the Messiah complex. Where somebody thinks, now that I'm here, everything is going to be better. Everything is going to be different. Or, in a generational sense, now that my generation is here, everything is going to be better. Everything is going to be fine. And sometimes we use the expression, delusions of grandeur or uh, megalomania, I suppose. Everybody else has been wrong all these years. Nobody was ever, uh, ever able to find what I have found, and now I'm here. That's the attitude Solomon is describing and responding to, I think, in verses 10 through 12. Those people who believe they are destined to change the world and leave a mark, solve all the problems, discover things that have never been discovered before, create a future that nobody has ever been able to create. Solomon says there is no history of anybody doing that. What is promised by these people who come along and think they have found everything, it's already been tried. God is God and man is man and that's not subject to change. I want you to listen to this text, 10 to 12, from the New Century Version. It's a paraphrase. I don't recommend it as your sole study Bible, but it does a good job here, I think, of capturing what this is about. Whatever happens was planned long ago. Everyone knows what people are like. No one can argue with God who is stronger than anyone. The more you say, the more useless it is. What good does it do? People have only a few useless days of life on the earth. Their short life passes like a shadow. Who knows what is best for them while they live? Who can tell them what the future will bring? Now, I said this is a paraphrase, but it helps us capture the reality of life here on earth when God is left out. It is miserable. It is bleak. When you try to find your meaning and purpose in what you can acquire here under the sun in fame and fortune, without regard for the maker of the sun. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Questions or comments before I go to my takeaways? Generally, we use the last 10 minutes or so for what we're going to take out of the building into life. So, takeaways. The fact that God allows you to have wealth are good things for a little while here certainly doesn't mean you will always have those things. You may have some great things for a while and then something happens. 
But even if you have nice things until you die, you don't get to take them with you when you die. So to attempt to find rest for your soul in things or acquisition is futile. Better to do what is taught back in chapter 5 and verse 7. Fear God. God is the one you must fear. So, start out this way. Be certain God is in your life. Later in Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon says, Fear God and keep His commandments. But in that same context, he says, Honor your Creator in the days of your youth. So start out and be certain God is in your life and be certain that He's with you at the very center of your life. Then enjoy what you have for a little while. Knowing that you only have it for a little while and that something far better awaits you. Number two. If one's soul cannot find rest and satisfaction in one's earthly labor and wealth and legacy, shouldn't it be clear the answer is not under the sun? Millions of dollars and hundreds of children, a good burial place or not, trying to find ultimate satisfaction here on earth without God is vanity of vanities. Solomon is saying to us over and over with different images and different kinds of poetic expressions and approaches. He wants us to see that what we need is not under the sun. We need the maker of the sun. Let's spend a little more time with something. Think about what Solomon mentions here in terms of losing everything. And this is not hypothetical. We've all seen breaking news of storms here in Texas and fires out on the West Coast where people lose everything. So. When we come to a place in Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes and he talks about losing everything, it's not just a hypothetical, it's not just poetic. In the wildfires out in California, a lady was interviewed a few weeks ago and the reporter said, so you've lost everything. He was interviewing the lady in front of a house that was just rubble. He said, so you've lost everything. The house was burned to the ground. The automobiles were ruined. All the contents consumed. And it was apparent, based on the visual there, that there was a great loss. So the reporter simply said, so you've lost everything. She said, oh no. She said, I've got my life, my husband, my kids, my grandkids, and no matter what else might happen, I've got the Lord and He's got me. Now, I don't know anything about this lady's religious life, 
But I know that her answer is exactly what Solomon is getting at. There's something else. Far above what you can acquire and succeed in here under the sun. Whatever you have under the sun that has your stamp of ownership, you could lose it all in one storm or one fire. You could lose it all in minutes and be empty-handed. But you can have God in your life. And as long as you stay with Him, there is no expected catastrophe. No expected catastrophe that can remove God from your life as long as you want Him to be there. So my soul is satisfied in Him who sent His Son to die for me, and my soul remains satisfied even if the cars and the house and the contents and the property are all gone. That's one of the main points in Ecclesiastes. I believe it was Sunday night that I read to us from Romans 8. Do you remember this? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You could pause here and add wildfires and hurricanes. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the kind of thing that captures the answer that this woman gave. My soul is satisfied no matter if I lose everything I acquire here. My soul is satisfied in my relationship with the maker of the Son. Something else I've got time to talk about, just about enough time to bring it up. There is something that you may read about, but may never see. It is called the doctrine of material renunciation. Someone will read a passage like the one we've read tonight and studied and react in an extreme manner by saying, I'm going to renounce all material attachments. 
I'm going to give everything away. I'm going to liquidate everything. If there is no spiritual satisfaction in things, I'm not going to have any things. Now, nobody ever really does that. They always hang on to some clothes or something. But in years past, that was called the doctrine of material renunciation. And it's sometimes called monasticism where somebody goes to a monastery and they give up a lot of things. They never give up everything. But they give up a lot of things. Well, that's not a responsible conclusion from what Solomon says here. God never upholds poverty as spiritually superior. Let me say that again. God never upholds poverty as spiritually superior. The fact that you have less material goods than someone else never means that you're superior to them. So that doctrine of material renunciation is not the point that Solomon is making. If we think the less we have, the closer we are to God, the Bible never teaches that. Solomon doesn't even imply that we should renounce all material attachments. In fact, Solomon says, enjoy what God lets you have, but keep it in perspective. Don't just latch on to the gifts and ignore the giver. That's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. 518, 5.18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Now, What's the role of God in Ecclesiastes 5.18? He's the giver. It is foolish, therefore, for me to latch on to the gifts, but then in my character and in my life and my perspective, completely push away the giver. I hope we get that from our studies in Ecclesiastes. So we'll move into chapter 7. Sunday morning. Thank you for your good attention to our study.